So if you have your Bibles or devices with you, uh, turn to Revelation 7. It's very easy to find because it's the last book of the Bible. We're in the last book of the Bible, um, and I suppose that would stand to reason given the fact that we are in the last sermon of just this couple month series on evangelism. And really what we find here is uh, the fruit of the church's evangelistic enterprises throughout history. It's a beautiful picture. So let's look at this beautiful picture here before us. Revelation chapter 7, beginning verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, and Naphtali, and Manasseh, and Simeon, and Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and also then 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. 12,000 from each tribe. Now, especially verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that's where we're going to end our reading here this morning. What a beautiful picture, uplifting picture. It is the culmination. It is the climax. It is the great crescendo of all the church's evangelistic activity throughout the ages. The gospel of Jesus has gone out. People have embraced that word, have embraced that good news. They have repented. They have believed. They have become a part of the church and the kingdom on this earth. And now in its perfection, in, in, in glory. You know, there, there, is, there is only one who can bring complete unity. And we see a picture of that here. There's only one who can, pro, can provide unity in the midst of so much diversity. And it ain't Trump, and it ain't Biden, and it ain't anybody else. It's the risen King Jesus. And we find a perfect picture of that here and in the church of Jesus Christ below, even though we are not a perfect church or a perfect kingdom, we know that Jesus is the head of the church. We know that he is sovereign and he's reigning. And we know that people of every tribe, nation, tongue, different backgrounds, different personalities, we have differences of many kinds. But in the church, we have one Savior. And we have one King. And while that is reflected, that unity and diversity is reflected imperfectly in this world, Oh, it is not reflected imperfectly or poorly above. Here we have union, we have unity, we have diversity in perfect harmony.
and what a picture that is. And if you take a look at verse 9, you find all this diversity. People of every tribe, nation, and tongue embrace the gospel of Jesus. And you notice, when you take a look at the text, it says that there are so many in number that you can't number them all. You can't count them all. The word for count here in the original is from, we get our English word arithmetic. In other words, you, you, can't, you can't count them all. You can't do all the math. It's just too many. And what this, what this picture in verses 9 and 10 underscore to us is really two things. Number one is the generosity of God. That God is not a stingy God with his grace. And the second thing we learn here is that the church's evangelistic enterprise is never an empty venture. God will use the evangelistic activity of the church, of us, of other churches in this city and throughout the world, to bring in those whom God has chosen in Jesus from all eternity. The instrument is God's people, and God will use them, and God is using us to gradually bring this about. That's our encouragement this morning. We're not here to be discouraged, but to be encouraged to continue doing what we're doing. So, with that having been said, um, I want to take a look, especially at verses 9 and 10, but before we understand verses 9 and 10, what I want to quickly do for a few minutes is, is to put it into context. I would call it more the immediate context, okay? I want to go back just to chapter 5. And when you take a look at chapter 5, what you're presented with is, and try to you can maybe imagine this somewhat, you're prov uh, provided with a scroll, a scroll, a scroll with, with seven seals around, around it. Okay, now bear in mind, and most of us know this, but perhaps you don't, Revelation is filled with images, is filled with symbolism, right, that, that, that beg to be interpreted, right? So you have this scroll, and this scroll is an image of God's plan for world history, and the seven seals around that scroll um, are a reflection of, as they are unfolded, the unfolding of God's plan for history. And when you take a look at the scriptures, who is the one who unfolds that history? Well, it's none other than Jesus Christ, who stands at the very center of the Bible. So what that teaches us is that Jesus, as the Christian church has said throughout the ages, is not only the deliverer of his people, the very one who reconciles us to God through his atoning work on the cross, but Jesus is not only the sovereign savior, but he's also the sovereign Lord of history. And he's governing all things. And we need to remember that, again, over the events of the past week where everybody's kind of getting agitated with this or that. But the fact of the matter is, while there sometimes is disruptions here below, there's no disruptions above. The sovereign king is moving all things to his appointed ends. It's the point of the scroll, the unfolding of the seals. So we see that in chapter 5. Moving quickly ahead, you come to chapter 6, and chapter 6 records the gradual unraveling of each seal, which is a reflection of God's disciplinary actions on this earth as a holy God, because the earth is not always living in the way that it should before him. So you have these judgments on, these, or on the earth through these six seals in chapter 6, all leading up to the unraveling of the seventh seal, which reflects the last judgment that is going to occur at the return of the sovereign Lord of history, Jesus Christ. Now, you come to chapter 7, where we're at, and chapter 7 provides us what we call, if you can kind of imagine this, um, in this long sentence of world history, you have this parenthesis. You, you have this 
this bracketing, if you will, between the unfolding of the six judgments in chapter six, and then eventually the unfolding of the seventh judgment at the return of Jesus Christ. So there's this interlude of sorts, and during this parenthesis period, this interlude of sorts, God is providing his people some comfort, some assurance to say to them, you know what, in the midst of the judgments and the difficulties that are experienced in this world, I want you to be assured that, that however we experience the difficulties and the fallenness and the disruptions of this world, the Lord is saying, you're mine. And whether you live or whether you die in this world, whatever happens to you, you're mine and I'll never let you go. And the reflection of that is then the seal that God places on the foreheads of his people. Now, again, this is all an image, okay? And this seal is a mark of ownership and belonging, where God says, you're sealed, you are mine. And notice how many, according to chapter 7, in the opening verses, notice how many are sealed, 144,000. 144,000. 144,000, again, should not be taken literally, but symbolically. 144,000 is 12 times 12. 12, very clearly in the Bible, a symbol or a number of perfection, of completion. So this is a picture, the 144,000 is a picture of the, of the completeness, the wholeness of all those who belong to the Lord at this time. We would call them in our circles on the basis of the language of the Bible, God's elect. All of God's elect, all those who are chosen in Christ are assembled here. And the Lord says, during this difficult time in history, you are mine. Now, we see those 144,000 verses five through eight, but for our purposes this morning as we move on, I wanna take a look at verses nine and 10. Take a look at them again, if you would. Here we move from what's on earth into heaven. And here we see now the international community of the elect of God in Christ. Verse 9 and 10, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Notice from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What are they doing? They're crying out with a loud voice and what do they say? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, if you can think of God's work in history as a beautiful musical piece, this is the crescendo. This is the culmination, this beautiful image. Actually, um, this image that we find here has been in the works since the very beginning of time. You know, here we are in the book of Revelation. What is the first book of the Bible? It's the book of Genesis. The book, literally, it's the book of beginnings, right? So in Genesis, you have the creation of the world and then the first couple of chapters. And then chapter three in Genesis is a very pivotal chapter because it records what we experience today, the fallenness of the world, right? So you have God creates the world, and as, as, as part of the climax of his creative activity, God creates Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve, while they for a time walked and talked with God, 
in a sinless state, yet in time they rebelled against God. I'm not going to get into all the details of that. And so Adam and Eve fell into sin. They fell into rebellion against God. And that affected, if you know your basic Christian theology, you know that affected not only Adam and Eve, but affected all of subsequent humanity. Because Adam is what we call our head and our representative, so that when he fell, we fell in and with him. We see the effects of fallenness all around us. And here's the thing, what's interesting from the Bible's perspective is that even though in chapter 3 we find the fullness of the creation, which, which not only affects Adam and Eve, but all of the physical world, God had every right at that point to say, you know what, um, I've had it, I'm fed up, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to destroy everything and begin anew. But he didn't, did he? What he did is he set out to restore the creation, and he set out to reconcile fallen humanity to himself by providing them a deliverer that people might entrust themselves to as the very instrument or the means to bring them back to God out of sin and alienation and desperation. That deliverer, of course, we know to be Jesus Christ. As you move on in world history, we find that the, the very instrument that God uses initially to bring this deliverer, this Jesus, this reconciler into the world, is a man named Abraham. And God comes to Abraham. Abraham actually at one point was living in spiritual darkness, but God comes to him and he speaks to Abraham and he enters into covenant with him. It means he enters into a formal bond of friendship and love, which involves in this covenant, this marriage, if you will, certain promises. And one great promise to Abraham was this. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And by blessing you, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations of this world, this fallen world. So I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And in you and through you and your descendants, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And subsequent from that, what we see in the history of humankind is God is working, and as that is displayed, as we move on through the books of the Bible, God works in the descendants of Abraham who become the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel supposed to be a light to the world, to the nations of this fallen world, but they failed miserably if you know the story of the Bible. But in New Testament, Jesus himself, the deliverer, comes on the scene. He reconstitutes Israel. He revives a certain remnant of it. And he uses them to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the world. And we are the recipients of that. And what we see is the culmination of that and our participation of that in that right here in our passage. My point is this. You know, this book, man, you're not going to understand it apart from God's plan, not only for his people, but ultimately for the nations. You just can't understand it properly because it's at the very core of it, okay? You know, um, I just want to add this and I want to make a few practical comments. Jesus himself, what I just explained here, Jesus himself describes what I just said uh, through a simple analogy. It's, it's, it's an analogy, it's an illustration that a child can understand, or someone who's just very new to the faith, okay? It goes like this. Jesus describes the enveloping and the embracing by the church of the nations by, by talking about 
a mustard seed that grows into a tree. And the mustard seed, Jesus teaches us, is just like the smallest of seeds, okay? And that, that mustard seed is planted in the ground, and as you can imagine, if a tree is gonna emerge, it's gonna take a lot of time. So the mustard seed is planted, and a tree begins to emerge, and over many, many years period of time, it grows into this huge tree. There is, um, when, I, when, I, when I think of Jesus' teachings, my mind goes back to my hometown um, as, a, as a kid, and there's, a, there's this huge tree in a park in the middle of town, and it's, it's a cottonwood tree. And the historians tell us that that tree was very, very likely planted by a Dutch immigrant named Jacob Koster back in the 1870s. There was, there was, it's a huge cottonwood tree. Now you think about it, 1870s, you do the math on that, it's like 100, and, what is it, about like 150 years old. And you stand underneath that tree, and the circumference of that tree, I mean, if you look at the base of it, I mean, it's, 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 it's wider than the, the stage that I'm on. It's just, just mammoth. When you stand under that tree, it just, even the branches that go forth from it are absolutely huge, and it just spreads out like a huge umbrella. You try to imagine that. It's a big cottonwood tree, Midwest cotton tree. And Jesus describes, so this mustard seed grows into a big tree like that, and then he goes on to say one other thing. He said what the, there are birds that fly around, and what they do is they, they, they come into that tree and they build nests all over the place. And that tree then becomes their home. And that is a beautiful picture of what we find in the evangelistic and missionary activity of the church here in this city, but throughout the world. It's, it's like when the gospel goes out and, and people one by one, as God draws them to Christ through repentance and faith, they, they build nests. They, they find a home. They find a home in the church and they find a home in the kingdom of God. And the ultimate home here is this beautiful picture that we have here before us. Now, When you, when you take a look at the imagery here, I, I think it's very easy for us to just kind of, kind of understand it with our heads, but to try to imagine this, it's, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, what, I, what I've found as a pastor is that it's, it's very easy um, in our perspectives, in our theology, sometimes to become reductionistic or a bit too narrow. Sometimes you can become too broad, that's not a good thing either, but you can become too narrow. And, and sometimes I think we, in the back of our minds, we think, you know, when we're gonna get the glory, there's, there's this is gonna be a, just a whole lot of people are kind of like us. Maybe a little bit of variations in the theme, but quite a bit like us. When in fact, I think we're gonna be quite shocked just how diverse and incredible it's uh, gonna be. But our, but our natural tendency, given Given our day-to-day, week-to-week experiences, we, we, we sometimes, I think, we, we, we kind of limit this, this vision. I'll give you a, a, a quick example of that where, um, going back once again to the area in which I'm living, I'm doing a lot of, and maybe it's a sign of age, but doing a lot of um, uh, kind of research a little bit, and um, I've always enjoyed history anyway, and I, I was, I've been reading about my background uh, with the, 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 it goes back a number of years, of, of Dutch ethnicity and the kind of Dutch churches. And it's very interesting, I'm reading about 
the area in which I lived, there was a, and many of you know this, in the 20s and the 30s, and this, you had this with the Germans and with Italians and others, with Christians that they went through real language issues back then because they were wondering, you know, are we going to switch from the Dutch language or are we going to uh, switch to the English language services? And in my research, what I have found, and this, this, had to, to, this was the experience of many churches at that time, different stripes of churches, that they started with the kids. They taught their kids English because the kids were second-generation immigrants. And so they do Christmas services in Dutch or uh, in English, and they would do Sunday school in English, but they would, they still in the 20s and the 30s, and even up into the late 40s in some churches, um, they continued to, to hold the worship services in the Dutch language because many individuals, especially the older ones, felt that that was only proper language for worship. And a true story, a, a minister, I think he started to get a little fed up with that because he realized we've got to make the transition at one point. He went up to an older lady at one point and he, said, he asked her, well, what kind of language do you think they're going to be speaking in heaven? And she said, without skipping a beat, Hollandse, wat anders? Dutch, what else? You know, it's probably, you know, my, my pronunciation is pretty bad. But, but you know, the, the point is, is that, you know, whether you're Dutch or you're German or you're Italian, you, you tend to focus in this life and on glory kind of in the terms that you know or the experiences that you know. But the point is, it's going to be much richer and much more diverse than we can ever imagine. Take a look at it again. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Oh, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now I want you to... I want you just to uh, focus your eyes on that text for just a moment. First of all, we see a great multitude that no one could count. It's beyond the math, as I said earlier. But notice where they're from. Every nation, from all tribe, and peoples, and languages. And, you know, here's the thing. When you do the research on this, you know, if you're going to pay close attention to the text, you're wondering, okay, what, kind of, what, what, are, the, what are the differences and what are the, some of the subtleties? It, it doesn't just say every nation. It says nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. And even when you do the research from the standpoint of the original language, it's kind of difficult. No matter who you read, it's difficult to determine exactly what, what these things refer to. But when you do the research on it, Here's, here's what you find. When you, the first thing it mentions here, there's going to be people from every nation, it says. When we, when we think of nations, we think of people groups that are defined by boundaries. Okay? I think that's what that is getting at here. People groups defined by boundaries. So, for instance, you have the United States. We have a boundary. Canada has a boundary. China, Russia, all these nations have boundaries. Same thing at this time. So you have peoples from different nations who are gathered here. Then what you have here, the second word here, is tribes. And when we think of tribes, we think of smaller people groups within nations. So, for instance, you take a look at verses 5 through 8, right? You have, you have the, obviously, symbolically, you have the, the nation of Israel representing the people of God, the true people of God. But then you have the mention of the various tribes, so you have the 12 tribes of Israel within national Israel. So you have, 
you have nations people, uh, represented, you have tribes, you have peoples, different peoples, groups, and, and races. So, you know, you think about it, you can have blacks, you have Caucasians, you can have Asians, you have Hispanics, the richness of humanity. And then finally, what you have mentioned here, of course, then we can understand this, people of languages, different dialects. I mean, here, what well, we, we speak, you know, the major language, right, yeah, the, of, of English. But then you think of, like, for instance, uh, the Wycliffe Ministry, where they train individuals to go out into all the peoples and nations of the world and all the tribes of the world in order to learn their language, to write down their language so that the Bible can be translated in their language. That has been happening for years. And so all the fruit of Wycliffe's activity, all the fruit of the church's activity, locally and abroad, Here's the point, all come to fruition here. So that while we look at nations and peoples and tribes and languages or tongues, while even from the standpoint of the original language, we can't press them too far in terms of their meaning, the main point is that what we have here is something that is very beautiful, full-orbed, diverse, rich. And notice what they are doing. First of all, they're clothed in white robes which is a representation of their purity and their sinlessness as they are found in Christ and in heaven. And they're holding palm branches in their hands, signs again, we're dealing with revelation images, they're signs of joy and they're signs of victory. And then also notice what they're doing. They're crying out and they're praising God, not with muffled voices, but with loud voices, salvation, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're worshiping. They're worshiping. A man whose name we are familiar with has said this, mission exists, evangelism exists because worship does not. And the main task of the church in the evangelistic activity or this evangelistic enterprise is to bring the gospel to others, not just so that they might be spared from the final judgment, the final seal, but so that they might do what God created them to do. And that is worship him. That's what we should want here, and that's what we should want for the church throughout the world, gathering in people, joining them here to this place, not so that we can have a card to show to others and say, see, our church is growing. No, but so that they might, that's a little bit self-centered, isn't it? It's no, so that they become worshipers of a sovereign God and of the Lamb. Again, that's our encouragement, you know, and it's our motivation that, that you and I join hands with each other and with other churches in the city and throughout the world as through our combined efforts, we bring the gospel so that as instruments of the sovereign Lord, this picture here become more and more um, a reality. Let's come before our Lord now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word of encouragement to us this morning. And now, Father, we pray, oh God, we pray that you will minister to us by your spirit and draw our hearts not only to Jesus and to one another, but to what lay in store for us in heaven above, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.